Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, listen to a conversation between myself and Jeff Gaska, a farmer from Beaverdam, Wisconsin, who uses almost every soil health practice in the book to promote soil health and farm profitability. Plus, stay tuned at the end of the podcast for another preview of one of the sessions from the upcoming 2023 National Cover Crop Summit, Finding the Right Mix, How to Get Started with Cover Crops and Cocktail Mixes with TJ Cartes. So I grew up on a farm in southwest Dodge County, Wisconsin. Basically, we started from nothing. It was uh, the farm was purchased by my parents um, after we moved up from Chicago. And my two older brothers kind of convinced my dad to get trying some farming. And so they started when I was pretty young. But I, I remember sitting in the tractor as we were moldboard plowing all of our fields and planting corn on corn. Um, back in the mid 70s, that would have been um, early 80s. And then, you know, slowly making that transition from moldboard plowing to chisel plowing and then adding soybeans into the rotation and then adding winter wheat, some winter wheat into the rotation and then going from conventional tillage to uh, more conservation tillage with the um, chisel plow. And then to really starting to look at um, uh, no-till as an option, probably in the early 90s, I would say, is when we started to look at that. And then through the 90s, we kind of uh, practiced with some different options. We had a, a Rawson unit on the front of our corn planter that basically was strip-tilling and planting at the same time. Um, that was the early adoption of strip-till, I think. Three coulters uh, on a... Um, toolbar right like I said right in front of our corn planter and kind of learned from that that we could do something along those lines you know that tillage wasn't that necessary um, we switched that was for corn we switched to a, a no-till drill then for our soybeans and our winter wheat and um, as we played around with the um, Rawson unit found some issues with it where you know, was doing a great job working up that soil in front of the corn planter, but it was wet soil because, you know, you went from a, a field that hadn't been nothing done to it to tilling about four or five inches deep in an eight inch strip, but it was bringing up a lot of moisture. And so that was kind of causing some issues with the corn planter following right behind. And so we decided to take off the Rawson unit and try to go straight no-till and that worked quite well. Um, then we started to go back and look at strip tilling as an option, just knowing what that Rawson unit did for our corn planter and how the how it worked. You know, it it was a great idea. Just you needed some time for that soil to dry out in between the planting. So we, my brother and I, built our own strip till machine from a um, cultivator uh, toolbar, kind of looking at all the designs that were out there and. None of them did everything we wanted. Uh, each one had its good points and points that we weren't really happy with. And so we kind of decided just to look at all those and build our own unit. We built this, a 12 row strip till unit and started playing around with that a little bit. And um, 
found that it worked, but we were a little short on horsepower with our tractor. And so then we started weighing the option, do we, do you buy another tractor to, to make that work? Um, we went back then to just straight no-tilling and giving that a try. And um, we're still not sure what is the best option. We, we might try and rebuild the strip-till unit. Um, I think we want to get away from the shank that we have on there to going back to something like what the Rawson unit was with just um, coulters and working up three or four inches of soil deep instead of a six or seven inch deep. Because uh, then you're kind of going back to tillage, even though you're not doing it field wide, you're still doing some tillage. Um, so we're playing around with that yet, but we've had good luck with just going on the, um, the straight no-till with the corn planter still doing beans and wheat with um, a no-till drill and having good success with that. Um, through that conversion and, and the changes in the farm, we added beef cattle to our operation. So we've got a, a herd of about 35 beef cow calf pairs. Uh, we raise Simmental cattle and do some crossbreeding with Red Angus on them and really trying to integrate the cattle into the whole farming operation. And um, kind of one of the ideas I have them trying to work with and, and get the cattle out on that ground, you know, it, everyone's always raising grain to feed the cattle, to make the cattle operation work. I kind of want to switch that around and raise cattle so that we can feed the grain as well and, and kind of get that holy grail of soil health where we can get the livestock in on the, the farm and, and make that work. And we're, we're making progress with that. Um, the big issue, of course, fencing and water and things like that for the cattle if they're out on the crop fields and trying to get all that figured out, but um, really want to try and integrate if the cattle in. And so, you know, one of the first steps to doing that was to get to go to a, a corn beans winter wheat rotation on all of our acres. So we, we run about 450 acres total. Um, a little more than half of that is owned and then some is rented. And basically we've gone to a third, a third, a third with our crop rotation. And um, that's setting us up to be able to utilize that land better for the cattle. And we can get cattle out there two out of three years then. So after we take off the winter wheat, we plant cover crops, we can graze cattle. Then once the cattle are pulled off of that, that field will go into corn. When we harvest the corn, we've got corn stubble for the cattle and corn or the fodder for the cattle to graze on in the fall. And then the only year we can't put cattle on is when we go to soybeans, from soybeans to winter wheat. Um, but again, trying to get the cattle out there two out of three years, utilizing that. Um, We've also gone to um, some rotational grazing for our cattle. So during the summer months, um, we used to just have a couple of real small pastures and we would graze it. It looked like a golf course, you know, constant grazing out there, just a bluegrass pasture and realized that that wasn't sustainable and it wasn't real beneficial to the pasture and to the cattle. So we've taken some cropland out of production, uh, fields that were, you know, would go from steep, uh, kind of rocky knolls down to wetlands and water and really inconsistent yielding for our crop production. And we put those into a permanent pasture now and we're putting up fencing for that and doing rotational grazing and at like a daily move with the livestock and hoping that that can get us 
the cattle can be out on that from the middle of May till September or the first of October. And then from there we can um, put them out on the, the winter wheat stubble, which would be planted to cover crops and then onto the uh, corn stubble. And, you know, trying to extend that grazing period, you know, from May, what would have been May to September or early October to hopefully May through the end of the year, you know, and get to January. Then we only have to feed our cattle January through May. And then, you know, and the goal ultimately would be to really cut that even shorter and, um, and really try and get the cattle to utilize the crop ground and our rotational grazing areas through maybe stockpiling or something like that. So that's kind of the, the story, I guess, um, you know, where we came from and kind of where we're trying to head it to and really be able to utilize all of our acres all of the time and uh, try and improve our soil health and, you know, save money by not tilling and, and um, get a better crop of grain off of it, as well as a better crop of cattle. So uh, I want to kind of back up in your timeline just a little bit. You guys sort of made a conscious decision then to add livestock to the production uh, to kind of complement the no-till farming you were doing. Is that right? Yes. So we had we had raised cattle for quite a few years before we integrated them into the the cropping part. I mean, like I said, we had we had a few pastures that we couldn't. Um, they were too steep to farm, um, too wet to farm. And they made great permanent pasture, but it was only, you know, maybe 15 acres and it wasn't enough to sustain the cattle. And like I said, it was mostly bluegrass pasture and it just wasn't working for the cattle operation. So we took a look at that is either get rid of the cattle and just kind of forget about it or make some changes with the farm to include the cattle more. And so yeah, that was a, you know, it was a conscious decision to try and integrate them more into the farming operation. And what we noticed as we started to do that, um, we were getting better yields, you know, on our corn, on our soybeans, um, especially the soybeans, noticing after we graze cattle on corn stalks in the fall, um, those fields that we planted to um, soybeans always were our best yielding soybeans. And so, it kind of made you start to think a little bit that maybe there was some benefit to that. And um, from there, it just made sense to really try and get them out on as many acres as we could. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know uh, I recently read an article that was kind of discussing uh, like four or five main things that that really increase soil health and, and kind of like you were saying, that holy grail. Um, and it was sort of arguing the point that, you know, a lot of farmers will come around to no-till, they'll, they'll come around to the cover crops, but it's oftentimes the livestock or the grazing that is either just harder to implement if you're not already doing it, or just something that a lot of farmers aren't necessarily sold on is going to, you know, help. So, but it, it's interesting to hear kind of your opinion on that and, and that you do think it, it's been making a big difference on the yield and, and on the soil health. Yep. Yeah, and you know, we've got we've had three crop fields that have easy access to our pasture. So we've been able to get the cattle out there probably for the last um probably 15 or 20 years, have had some grazing on it. Usually it was after corn stalks. Um, but you know, I after we had done that, you know, for 20 years and we're kind of looking at those fields, and I said, well, let's 
let's look at the soil sampling on those fields. And we went back and looked at fertility levels and every one of those fields, soil fertility is going up. You know, the, the P, the K, we're adding less, um, you know, as far as pH, it seems to be pretty nicely balanced. Um, and it just, it was interesting to actually see that happening where all my other fields were stable, you know, we weren't mining the fields or the soil, but those fields in particular, you know, kept going up for us. And so, you know, you, you don't put the two, two and two together right away until you really start looking at that. And, and seeing that made me really realize that, you know, again, not only seeing the yield in the soybeans going up, but also seeing the fertility levels of those fields going up um, without having, with putting on, we were doing the same fertilization, you know, with P and K on those fields as we were all our other fields. And most of our other ones were just maintaining, um, whereas these were going up. And the, really the only difference was the cattle on them. So, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago now, I think was when I met you at the, the Dodge County Soil Health event. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. But uh, I want to go back to sort of some of the things that you discussed there. I know you uh, mentioned, I believe there was um, the 60-inch row corn mm -hmm. that you guys were, were starting with. Is there sort of an update on that at all or how that worked out for you guys? I was just curious. Yep. So um, one of the things that we were really looking at, you know, again, being able to get the cattle out on the crop ground and get more benefit for the cattle. Um, one of our ideas was to try the 60 inch row corn and then um, interseeding that with cover crops so that we could have more biomass for the cattle once we harvested the corn and give them more opportunity to graze and increase our grazing period in the fall, you know, instead of just going out there and having them forage through the, the corn fodder, we, you know, we're hoping to get some good cover crops with some better nutrient value and, and biomass out there. So it's been a two-step process so far. We're going into the third step of that this coming year, but I did it. I started by just doing a test plot with 60 inch row corn. And um, we'd always done 30 inch rows. We shut off every other row on the corn planter. And I did some replicated trials with that. And we found this would have been in 2021, we found that the yield difference between the 60 inch row corn and the 30 inch row corn was negligible. Um, two to three bushels, I think we came out with. Um, I think if I remember right, the, the 30 inch row corn did about 220 bushels, 222 bushels per acre, and the 60 inch row corn was about 219 bushels. So three bushel difference. That was without any cover crops, so so it was just testing that. And um, what we did with the sixty-inch row corn is um, we basically doubled the population in the rows. So we were still planting on a per acre basis thirty-five thousand seeds per acre, like we did in the thirty-inch rows. But because you're skipping every other row, we had to put those seeds in the rows that we were planting. So we were at about um, seventy thousand seeds in row in the 60 inch row corn. Um, when in 2022, then we tried replicating that, but then we put in cover crops, um, interseeding cover crops in between. And what we noticed is 
we did take a bigger hit on the pot, or on the yield on the corn in the 60 inch row corn. Um, we did two things kind of not necessarily by mistake, but I was, as we were doing the 60 inch row corn, I went as we were at 70,000. I was talking to some people, they thought to really get a better yield out of that 60 inch row corn, we had to push the population higher. And so I went up to 80,000 seeds in row and we put cover crops in. So as far as a real tried and true study, we changed two things, not the best idea, but we figured we're gonna just try this. It, it's not a, it's not, this isn't meant to be in some publication or anything. It's just what we wanted to see. Um, so we did lose some yield on the corn in 2022. Um, pr probably, a, a, I really feel a lot of it was because of the population increase. Um, when we started looking at that corn as it was coming up and as it was maturing, it was a solid stand of corn. I mean, it was inches between each plant. And what we had noticed is that there were corn plants in the row that were not producing a, a cob. And so we really feel that we probably stressed that corn too much and kept some population. The population was too high. We ended up interfering with the corn plant growing. And so all those corn plants that didn't produce a cob were basically weeds in the, in the row and took away from our yield. Um, the interseeding, we did a, a, a mix of, it was about a 16 or 17 species mix with brassicas and um, some grasses, oats and um, rye, barley, and um, I think a little bit of clover in there too, a couple species of clover. Um, what we noticed is that the grasses and the clover did very little in as far as growth. And we ended up with a, a stand that was almost all brassica in the end. Um, and the brassicas, you know, they're great for grazing. There's a lot of biomass, but they also take up a lot of nitrogen as they're growing, uh, you know, any of the radishes or the kales or things like that. Took up, probably took up some of the nitrogen from the corn. And so I have a feeling that's what kind of dinged our yield a little bit as well. So in 2022, the difference between the two yields was we were at about 209 bushels per acre in the 30 inch row. And we were down to about 178 bushels in the 60 inch row with covers. So we had a, I would say a significant decrease in yield um, by going to the 60 inch row with that planting population and with the covers in between. And so again, learning as we go, trying to figure out what's working and what's not working. So what we did is we looked um, with the um, UW extension person, Will Fullwider from Dodge County. We looked at the economics of doing that and trying to see, we knew we took a yield hit, but could that yield hit in corn be made up with additional grazing in the cattle and gain, maybe weight gain in the cattle? And when we penciled out all the numbers, looking at the biomass and the loss in yield, we came up with it did not. Um, the loss in yield was greater than what we could make up by um, having the cattle out there for, we figured we could probably get another 15 to 20 days of grazing out there by putting the cover crops in. And um, it didn't work out that well. So it told us a couple of things. One, we need to work on that 60 inch row corn and trying to get that yield back up 
so that the yield hit isn't as great. Because if we can get that close to what I would be getting if I planted 30 inch row corn, then the opportunity to gain from grazing those cattle increases significantly. We have the potential, I think, to not only keep the cattle off of hay for a longer period of time in the winter, but also maybe gain weight on those cattle and um, put them into winter in a better condition. So what we're doing now in 2023 is we're going to do two different trials. One is going to look specifically at planting population of corn in 60 inch rows. And we're going to look at, we're going to go up 10,000 seeds per acre um, from about, I think we're going to start at about 50,000, do a 50, 60, and 70,000 um, seeds per acre and replicated trial with that. And then on a separate field, we're going to do um, three different mixes in our cover crop mix. And one is going to be uh, a more of a, a grass mix, grass with clover mix. One is going to be a mix of grasses and brassica, and one is going to be almost a straight brassica mix. And then in the end, what we're going to look at, one, does it affect the yield of the corn? Does one of those affect the yield of the corn more or less? And two, what do we get for biomass? Because um, that's ultimately what we want is biomass for the cattle to be feeding in those um, corn stalks after we harvest. So we're going to do some replicated trials on that this year and see if we can't learn a little bit more about how to tweak the system and get a better um, better gain from the cattle and a better um, yield from the corn on those. So we're looking forward to that and pretty excited about giving those a try and kind of trying again to figure out what what are we missing there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, uh, as you said, I mean, as long as you're kind of continuing to learn things and, you know, it's okay to obviously make some mistakes as long as you're kind of taking that info and, and learning and especially also sharing it with others so they can kind of learn from it too. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with Montag Dealer. Visit MontagMFG.com or call Montag at 712-517-2775. And now, let's get back to the conversation. Uh, going along those lines, it uh, should be a nice kind of transition for us to talk a little bit about the, the Dodge County group that you're involved with. So do you want to talk yep. a little bit about that and kind of what, what the goal there is and the mission? Sure. Yep. So um, six about six years ago or so in our county, there was a re resolution brought forward to the county board to um, force land farmers to put a buffer strip around all the ditches, all the waterways. And um, a group of people, I wasn't involved at that initial beginning, but um, a group of farmers kind of got together and said, there might be a better way to do this. Instead of making rules, making laws to force farmers to do something, why don't we look at some other options and seeing if we can't get farmers to work together and, um, you know, in, increase cover crops, do soil health things to try and improve that and try and keep our rivers and lakes clean. 
versus again mandatory you know legislation or enforcement of rules so that group started and um got together tried to figure out a way to you know work together with um the lakes people also and that and i think that's the key to this to our group our group is dodge county farmers for healthy soil healthy water there's a a co i would call them a, maybe a co-group we call it the alliance now the dodge county um, healthy soil healthy water alliance which brings together the farmers and the lake associations the lake districts and anyone interested in you know clean water healthy soil together as an organization as well they're two separate organizations but we work together quite a bit and we are in communication all the time I'm a board member for the Dodge County Farmers Group, and I'm also the co-chair of the Dodge County Alliance. So we have a lot of crossover. We have representatives from the Lake Districts and that, and we try to work together and solving this problem. And instead of pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other for what we're seeing out there, we're, we're trying to be friends. <laughs> we're trying to work together. We're um, sitting down at the same table and discussing ways to improve the education of people you know, the the needs for clean water, the needs for clean soil, and how can we do that, as well as putting together, you know, programs to get farmers started with cost sharing on cover crops and um, doing um, pay for performance type programs where we encourage landowners to use what they want to do to try and reduce phosphorus runoff and, and erosion on their farms, and then um, pay them according to what they're they're doing and um, making it a, a feasible option for them to um, look at some better conservation efforts. And so our group, again, but we're about six years old. Um, in, Mar in February, we had our, our annual meeting, our Soil Health Expo and had Dave Brandt come up and talk um, from Ohio, did a great job explaining what they've been doing down there and some of the benefits that they're seeing. And so hopefully getting more farmers interested in it to start looking at cover crops, looking at um, buffers, you know, anything that we can do no-till to help them improve their soil and reduce their inputs and try and get um, some better, you know, better uh, rivers, better, cleaner lakes, things like that in our county. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, as I mentioned, I attended that, the most recent one with Dave Brand, I thought it was really good good event, great presentations, uh, a lot of good conversations with people. So really cool to see that kind of stuff. And it seems like we're seeing more and more of that uh, in lots of different counties across the state of Wisconsin, which is mm -hmm. definitely really encouraging to see. Um, and while we're on the topic, I, I remember you sort of talking about uh, during uh, the the panel that you were part of at that event, um, sort of like an interesting strip-till uh, story that you had involving some deer that that you kind of had problems with. Uh, I yep. thought it was a really interesting story, if you wouldn't mind kind of telling our audience about it. Yep. So one of the first things I tried um, on my farm, the land that I owned, uh, I've been reading about the not strip tilling, but strip farming. So basically planting our crops in narrow strips to try, especially for the corn, to get as much sunlight. Um, the outside edges of the corn uh, have more sunlight so we can improve yield. Um, what we did is we did 30 foot row, 30 foot wide strips um, on our farm. We planted um, 
12 rows of corn, 12 rows of soybeans, and then 30 feet of winter wheat. So we did a corn beans wheat rotation, each of them in 30 foot wide strips, the length of the field. And then every year you would just move over one and, and do the, your crop rotation, um, but in those strips. And again, the idea was that corn, you'd have the sunlight hitting the two outside rows the most, we can increase the yield of the corn um, because we have that, um, the effect of the sunlight on those, on the narrow strips of corn in there. And the first couple of years, it worked out really great. We had, um, so the farm average of corn was, this was probably six or seven years ago when we started it. Um, we were in the 190s or somewhere around there with corn yield. And um, the first year we did it, I think we hit 230 on the corn in those 12 row strips. The second year we were at about almost 275 in those rows and comparing it to our regular corn, which was right around that 200 uh, bushel mark. I really had a goal of 300 bushels per acre on those strips of corn. And it seemed like we were heading in the right direction. We were um, making things work. And then basically what happened is the deer found the farm. And what, what we realized is deer are a, a species that love edge. They like a lot of edge. That's where they find their protection. They can find food. And so all my fields were edges to them. And so the whole farm turned into a buffet basically. And the, the deer, so we had winter wheat out there and the deer would come as soon as winter was over, the deer would come and start eating the winter wheat, which was greening up right away. And then as that got taller, we would get out and plant our soybeans and our corn and the deer would switch to eating that. And as the corn was growing, you had those outside edges and the deer would just walk right down the edge of the soybeans or the winter wheat and start eating the corn. And basically we lost production in those two outside rows, which um, was where we were supposed to get our big yield influx from. And basically ended up having to stop that uh, practice. Um, I, like I said, I had really high hopes for it, but it was just too good of a deal for the deer and we were really losing production. Um, they had two, basically really ended up being two effects. One, they would eat the corn, so we weren't getting cobs on there and they would hamper the growth of that corn on the outside edge so much that we, would, we were ending up getting a lot of weed pressure. Um, so much sunlight was coming in that, you know, the weeds, even though we did a herbicide program, the weeds would just start growing in those outside rows. And so we were not only were we battling weeds on the outside edges, but um, the deer eating the corn on that. So unfortunately, we had to kind of pull the plug on that, um, couldn't really find a way to control the deer well enough and economically to, to make that work. So we went away from that, but you know, those fields are still, we're still doing a corn bean um, winter wheat rotation on them and trying to get cattle out on those fields as well. But um, yeah, it's one of those things you kind of, something you wouldn't have expected. We thought we were heading in the right direction. Everything seemed to be working good. And then kind of out of the blue, we end up with this issue with deer damage and um, causing us enough to cause us to stop the, the uh, practice. So. Yeah, it's a, like you said, unexpected, but really interesting, yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting story there for sure. A um, couple more questions for you. I'm, I'm curious with all your experience, is there any, um, you know, it doesn't have to be one necessarily, but one or two or three cover crops that, that have been really reliable for, for you. I know, obviously it's different for everybody, but something that has worked really well for you specifically. 
Yeah. So my first real foray into cover crops was frost seeding clover into winter wheat. And I've done that for probably almost 20 years now. And what really got me going on it, one was looking at the nitrogen credit that I could get from the clover, but also it, it was our kind of our start into grazing cattle on cover crops. And so we would harvest the winter wheat and, um, then we had a cover growing there already. We had the um, the uh, clover in the field already established and we could get the cattle out on that field sooner than if we went in and planted that, you know, after um, winter wheat harvest. So it worked out well for us. Um, we even did um, some studies on it. We did some trials to see, one, there was concern that was the clover impacting the winter wheat yield. And we did two years of uh, replicated studies on that and found no impact whatsoever on the wheat yield from the clover. Um, I will say though that the clover can impact your straw. yield. So depending on what you need as far as straw, um, because that clover at times can get growing pretty good in the winter wheat, we were having to harvest that straw, the wheat at a higher um, height, which again for, Cover crop purposes was great as far as uh, cover on the soil was great. Um, and we were still able to get um, a pretty good yield of straw. It had clover leaves in it, but they always managed to dry down pretty good. And we were able to harvest that um, straw. We don't use much straw ourselves, a little for bedding, but I was selling most of it to uh, local dairy farmers to mix in with their feed rations and that. And they weren't having any issues with it. It was working great for them. So we were able to get um, probably about three to four bales, big square bales per acre of straw, which translates to about a ton and a half to maybe two tons of straw um, per acre, leaving probably about six to eight inches of stubble. So we certainly could have got more straw yield out of there, um, but I felt getting a couple bales per acre was good enough. It, it added to the income from the winter wheat. It left us a lot of stubble out there and a lot of material out there, and it allowed that clover to really take off and get going. So we were able to utilize that clover for um, grazing our cattle. And um, then I would also can, I would also count between 40 and 80 pounds of nitrogen credit the following year on corn. And so that worked out really well for us. I still do some of that. Um, we're playing around with tweaking that program a little bit because we're knowing that we're going to go into doing um, covers and grazing cattle. If I plant everything to clover, my cattle can't get at all, at all of it at the right time. You know, so we're going to have we, we're going to run into issues if it's all clover, some of it's going to be over mature when we want to put the cattle out there. So we're looking at utilizing that clover on the winter wheat that we want to graze the cattle on right away in, you know, early to mid August. And then the other fields that are winter wheat, we want to plant a cover in there so that we can have some grazing in September. And then we're looking at planting some species that we're going to be grazing after frost and into winter. So it just, it gives us an opportunity to try some different species, you know, after winter wheat, but, but give us that opportunity to get some clover going right away so we can graze right away. So clo red clover was my first, like I said, my first foray into cover crops and it, it seemed to work out really well for us. Um, we've played around with um, cereal rye and run into 
some issues with that if we're going to go after um, soybeans and before corn. And now that we're at a, this was before I was at a third, a third, a third in my rotation. So it, 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 there were points in the, in the last five to 10 years where we had soybeans that were going to be going into corn, not into winter wheat. We were able to plant rye on those fields after we harvested the soybeans. The issue we ran into is terminating that rye um, with the corn growing in it. And um, that rye in the spring just takes off. It's a fast grower, which is why we like it. It's got a lot of roots. It's got a lot of biomass. But if you run into a delay in spraying or getting behind or you have weather conditions, that rye can have a pretty good impact on the corn, a negative impact on the corn and um, take away a lot of nitrogen and, and cause that corn to um, really get narrow and kind of floppy because it's got a, um, a lot of competition when it starts to grow. So it, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it has, you have to be prepared with the management of that to get it taken care of. It does do a great job of suppressing the weeds. Um, you know, not saying that we can, that we're at the point yet where we can take out a spraying, but we, what we've noticed is we can delay some sprayings and, you know, maybe instead of having to go with a two pass in corn, we can go with a single pass in corn because that rye is in there um, helping us. But again, I want to really stress that you have to be ready to manage that rye in the spring. Um, where it's not as big of an issue is if you go from corn to soybeans, and if we can drill some rye into our um, corn after we harvest it, um, that the soybeans seem to be able to handle that rye a lot better and you have more time to terminate it in the spring without it, um, hurting your wheat or your um, soybean populate or soybean yield. So um, I like rye yet. Um, I want to use it where I can when we're going into uh, a field going into soybeans. Um, for us, the issue is we're not harvesting our corn until October and sometimes well into November. Um, so getting that rye planted in a timely fashion is not always easy. The good thing about rye is that it can make it through just about anything. And we've been in situations here where we've planted rye in early December and um, had it come up the following spring with no issues. So we do have that opportunity. It doesn't come up as much as we had hoped. What I've also been able to do is plant that rye, it, it, harvest the corn, plant the rye, and then graze cattle on that stubble as well. So there's no rye coming up yet. It's all been drilled in with a no-till drill, but we still can utilize that corn stalks for um, cattle uh, fodder for feed during the fall and winter. And then when they, they graze that and we pull them off in the winter and in the spring, it comes up with rye and we can go into that with our soybeans and plant that. So I do think rye, cereal rye has a good place yet. Um, on the farm, but again, just uh, really being cautious of the management. The other thing we're looking at next is the um, more of a cocktail mix in our after our winter wheat. And again, kind of looking at two different scenarios there. One that will probably be more of an oat pea barley, um, maybe like a vetch in a clover mix that we can plant immediately after we harvest that rot or that winter wheat and give us green forage in September and October uh, for the cattle. And then another mix would be more of the sorghums probably, or pearl millet, um, some brassicas in there probably. And again, some um, legumes, clover or um, hairy vetch, things like that, that we can get, we, we can um, 
plant that, leave it go all fall, and then put the cattle out on there after we have frost, after they're off the corn stubble and the, the more of the green forage in the winter wheat. So um, looking at those species and, and putting those into some kind of a, you know, anywhere from five to 10 species mix, trying to get some, um, since all of our winter wheat is going to be going to corn, we want to get some legumes in there to get some um, nitrogen credit, but also a lot of biomass for the cattle to graze on. So I would say those would be the the species that we're really working with and um, trying to tweak, you know, again, seeding mixes and stuff like that to really get it to to meet the the forage demands, I guess is probably the biggest thing. Sure. All right. So just want to close out with sort of a two-part question for you, a little more general. Uh, first part would be what's sort of the biggest surprise that you've learned from either no-till or cover crops uh, with all your experience in both? And the second part would be what do you think is going to be the greatest challenge for you during your 2023 growing season? So the biggest surprise, I guess the fact that cover crops work and don't necessarily have to impact yield and impact uh, negatively um, farm income and and that. I guess, you know, it was always the hope that that would be the case. You're always thinking, boy, if you can do something different to save money or whatever, that it's not going to cost you money, that it's going to, you know, be able to at least keep things at the same level, if not improve them. And knowing that when managed properly and, you know, you'd manage it like you would the rest of your crops, it can make a, a very positive impact um, on the farm. I, I think both economically and it just as important, I think, is the soil health part of it and the health of the environment and uh, you know everything that we're putting into the soil and, and taking out from it, um, really being able to see that this can work and we can uh, replicate it and we can talk to other people about it and show them that it works. And it's not kind of that pie in the sky, latest fad type thing. It, it, this is something that I think is going to stick around and really um, last. And, and I think people can find, like I did, you know, with our operation, ways to make it work in different ways than maybe we originally thought it might, you know, by, being able to increase our cattle herd or increase our income from our cattle and um, trying to make that all work. That's not for everyone. Every farm is different. Um, we have the opportunity to utilize the cattle so we can, but if, if it does anything, maybe it's helping other people think about that and say, well, boy, maybe I could add cattle or the neighbor has cattle. Maybe I can get him to use them on our, my farm and benefit my soil and benefit him. And, um, we've actually, I've been actually been able to do that with a neighbor of mine that they don't have cattle, but they're for cattle, you know, pro cattle, I would call them. And they're one of the um, pieces of land that they rent um, is adjacent to ours. And we were able to get the landowner and them to agree to let me graze that field. So we grazed it after winter wheat and we grazed it after corn. And so here's an opportunity for me to add acres to the farm without having to buy them, you know, basically renting them and giving them the benefit of having cattle on their land and me the benefit to my cattle. So being able to think about things like that and how we can make that work. So um, that's been, a, I think, a great benefit of what we've been able to do and, and see. So um, hopefully that will continue and people will continue to see that this is something that can make sense. Um, and again, each farm is individual, but 
hopefully they can find something in it that um, they can use on their farm. Um, biggest challenge uh, upcoming, for me, it's gonna be, I, I think what I really wanna focus on is trying to cut it, um, inputs and how can we do that? Um, you know, looking at the numbers that Dave Brandt was presenting where he's going on fields where he's adding no additional fertilizer or maybe just nitrogen. Can I go to that level? Um, and I think we're going to try that on maybe one field, you know, and not, we've got great history of soil samples on all of our fields and can we show some benefit to that? And so the challenge is trying to make that work, you know, and see if it does work, you know, how can we fit that in? Um, can it, can it be done economically? Can we still get a good yield? How long does it take to, you know, see the benefits of that? Um, so trying to work around that. And then I think also the other challenge is, you know, our weather patterns are changing and we have to be ready for that. And how can, how can we do that? And I, I do think cover crops are the answer to that. And how can we implement that to um, help us not necessarily solve, but live with those changes and, and, you know, deal with three inch rains or four inch rains or Februaries that are warm and you got to deal with the freezing and thawing and, and stuff like that, or, you know, dry weather during the summer, um, can cover crops come in and play a role in, in helping us mitigate a lot of that? So um, it, it's a challenge to me, I think, to see if we can kind of, like I said, solve or um, live with those issues and, and make cover crops part of that to work. And, um, and it, it, I'm challenging myself to try and reduce inputs and, and, and make it the farm more viable, not looking at the soil as just a median to grow something in, but as a, a integral part of the operation and something that needs to be taken care of, um, just like the cattle need to be taken care of or something like that. So, Awesome. Well, some really good insights. Uh, just want to thank you again for, for joining us and, and having these discussions with us. So um, thanks a lot for your time. We really appreciate it. Yep, you're welcome, and I was glad to be able to help you out and give you some insight in what we're looking at here. Thanks to Jeff Gaska for that great discussion. And now, check out this preview of a session for the upcoming National Cover Crop Summit with TJ Cartes. TJ's presentation is called Finding the Right Mix, How to Get Started with Cover Crops and Cocktail Mixes. So TJ Carter, I live in William Prairie, Minnesota, which is in southern Minnesota. I have been selling cover crops for Saddle Butte Ag now since 2014, 15, somewhere in there. Um, what we do in this area is we actually promote the use of covers and try to really help guys transition from full tillage to strip till to using cover crops to regenerative ag type situation on a profitable level. So if you take home messages, what we're going to try to get across today is you know, the different species of cover crops that are out there, kind of location we're in, how you make this work on your operation. Um, and and the, the different species, I, I think that is really critical is what each one of them does or tries to do for you. And then at the same time, how many do you need? Do we need these massive cocktail mixes day one? And I think that gets to be an area that gets to be a little confusing overall. I mean, for producers, I like them to start lower and work up the ladder. So. That's what we'll kind of cover today in today's presentation.
In terms of uh, sort of experience level, what do you think somebody from uh, more of like a introductory standpoint, somebody who's maybe just looking to get into cover crops versus somebody who maybe is a little more experienced, what's something that each of those different types of farmers could possibly take away from your presentation? So we'll, we'll try to hit on some of the basics, you know, like starting out, I always tell guys corn and beans is really an easy entry point. Uh, beans respond well to cereal rye, it's easy to plant into it, it's easy to terminate it out. It gives you that idea of the overwintering. For the guys that are farther up the ladder, what I tell them is now we start looking at the multi-species, maybe we're adding the third crop, maybe you're doing more in front of corn. And that's always been a big area, especially in the farther north, is that in front of the corn crop is we don't want to ding the corn crop. So, you know, how do you get more things established in front of that corn crop versus soybeans are fairly easy entry point, the corn is more of an advanced point. And then there's always the interseeding, and we'll touch on that a little bit, where you go into like B2, B3 corn. And I tell everybody that's a very 202, 303 uh, type level uh, presentation or, or uh, steps to go forwards with. And lastly, uh, you obviously work with a lot of different farmers. Why, why do you think it's so important to kind of foster this level of you know, educating each other and kind of bouncing ideas off each other in terms of cover crop strategies? Well, everybody's had different levels and good experiences and bad experiences. And if you had a bad experience, I tell everybody, talk about it. Let's talk it over and figure out why it happened. But at the same time, so the next guy doesn't have to do it. We've had enough bad experiences. <clears throat> I tell everybody, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've had some train wrecks. We'll tell you what they are, why we think they happened, how to stay away from them. So that networking of farmer to farmer is huge. I, I tell everybody, when I get done the presentation, the part I love is when I look around the room and I have some of my advanced producers there, some of my medium, and then the early guys, and they're like networking around with each other. I always figure my job is done at that point because they're starting to teach each other. And that's our goal is to teach them their goal is to teach each other. So it's that whole networking where like at the no-till conference, strip-till conference, this kind of stuff, it's that whole networking that lesser media brings together for us to really tie it into that whole pro pro program of, you know, everybody can work together. There's There should be no trade secrets out here. We should share everything very openly with each, each company, each producer. Thanks again to Jeff Gaska for today's discussion. The full transcript will be available at covercropstrategies.com slash podcasts. And thanks again to TJ Cartes as well for that preview of his upcoming presentation at the National Cover Crop Summit. Don't forget to register for the free event at covercropsummit.com. Many thanks to Montag Manufacturing for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. From all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening.